homily for the 24th Sunday in Ordinary Time, St. Mary's Church, September 16th, 2018. This weekend, the Church in the United States celebrates Catechetical Sunday, and we will be praying after this homily in a special way for our religious education teachers, as well as our kids and their families. We ask you to join with us in prayer during the year for the efforts of these young people and their catechists. This past Friday, the 14th, we celebrated a feast day called the Exaltation of the Holy Cross. And today, the Lord Jesus insists that we need to take up our cross if we are to follow him. <clears throat> so what does the cross of Jesus mean to you? How does his suffering and death change the way you see your life? The events we just heard mark a turning point in the Gospel of St. Mark. Let's explore what happened here more carefully. St. Mark starts by placing Jesus and his apostles in the villages of Caesarea Philippi. He doesn't throw out this detail for no reason. This region is pretty far afield of Jesus' usual territory. It's closer to Damascus than Jerusalem, and it had been a pagan pilgrimage site for centuries, from the earliest civilizations to the Greeks and the Romans. The name Caesarea is in homage to the Roman cult of worship of the emperor, the Caesars. It becomes all the more dramatic when Peter proclaims in this very place that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and not any of the false gods to whom the locals had previously prayed. Jesus received Simon Peter's proclamation with joy, because only the Father could have revealed this. But we soon see what idea Peter had of the Messiah. The prevailing opinion and it's hard to blame them for this, was that the long-awaited anointed one would be invincible. We know Jesus was victorious, but not in any way his disciples could have imagined, that is, not through the mode that he actually took on. Our Lord foretold a great paradox. <clears throat> he knew that his victory would be gained through a horrible death. Just how horrible was crucifixion? It brought about the end gradually, since the lungs eventually lost air capacity and its public humiliation served as a powerful deterrent. The Romans got the idea of crucifixion from the Persian Empire, and they refused to use it as a punishment for their own citizens because of its extensive cruelty. Otherwise, Jesus and the thieves crucified with him would have been executed by a different means. St. Paul refers in one of his letters to the Jewish axiom that accursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. All of his brothers were thinking, no such thing must happen to you. But Peter just happened to be the one bold enough to speak up. Now, was Jesus' response to Peter out of proportion? It certainly sounds that way. Peter intended to convey brotherly concern, not evil intent. But Jesus could not allow any of his disciples to remain misled. One way to interpret his words, get behind me, is in a literal sense. Stay behind me and follow where I lead. Because if you go off on your own way, you'll be lost. Farther from the destination than you should be. The Aramaic word 
translated as Satan, means an adversary or tempter. Think of the greatest temptation which the Lord confronted, avoiding his passion and pushing the world's misery away. Remember what he prayed on Holy Thursday night? Father, if it is possible, take this cup away from me. Plenty of other times, the temptation was essentially to follow the advice of be what the crowd wants you to be. We have a hero who chose a sign of disgrace for his pedestal, who set his face like flint, knowing that he would not be put to shame. We proclaim Christ crucified, broken and poured out, but not destroyed, who died in agony, but rose again. The world's greatest evil is the separation from God due to sin, and not the experience of suffering. Those who pursue freedom from suffering in this life above all else have an immature view of the human condition and are living in a dream world. The example of Christ provides the only context for the sufferings we face in this life that makes any sense. There is a life to come of blessedness and peace in which all suffering and injustice will be no more. For now, we can offer up our sufferings in union with the sufferings of Christ on the cross for the salvation of the world. We do not seek out suffering for its own sake, but through Christ, the hardships that we encounter have a new redemptive dimension. They are not the attacks of a vengeful God or evidence of a senseless existence. Our world is fractured due to sin, but only the paschal mystery of Jesus reaches into that brokenness and leads us out of it. Lastly, we need to spend a little time on today's second reading from the letter of St. James. We only hear from this book about five times over the three-year cycle of Sunday readings. But the passage proclaimed today is one of the most influential in the whole Bible. Faith of itself, if it does not have works, is dead. There ought not to be a controversy swirling around that teaching, but it does represent a major point of contention that goes back to the Protestant Reformation. The theology of Martin Luther casts the human race after the fall of Adam and Eve in a condition not merely of weakness, but of depravity and despair. In our fallen nature, he argued, even our works were corrupt and not to be trusted. The problem is that this description renders the moral life very passive. We know God gives us the power of free will to choose what we do or do not do. Those choices have real consequences, unless neither our noble deeds nor our vulgar offenses affect the state of our souls. Why do good or avoid evil if our moral acts are empty? There really should be no controversy. Faith is a virtue from God, and therefore is a gift, not a paycheck. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not as though we knocked on the door of a distracted God and said, God, you need to start noticing all the great things that we're doing. That is a heresy. We are redeemed and justified by the work of Christ, not our own or anyone else's. Every human being who is to be saved is to be saved by the merits of Jesus. And it's imperative that we share the gospel message with as many people as we can. 
so that they too may know who it is that is one new life for them. But remember the words of St. Paul to the Bishop Timothy, If we deny him, he will deny us. Those who tragically live in the state of unrepentant mortal sin eat and drink condemnation upon themselves when they partake of the Eucharist. Even though God in his goodness saves us, he did not take away from his children the ability to say no to him, despite how terrible such a decision would be. Good works are beautiful, but they do not take the place of faith. They are to be the evidence of faith, flowing out of a grateful heart. The good that we do builds up our desire to be holy, set apart from the world for God's honor and glory. Also, these works have a tangible benefit. Remember Jesus' words, Whoever gives someone a cup of cold water to drink because he is a disciple will not want for his reward. If nothing that we did, for good or ill, mattered, why would he say such a thing? There is no disagreement between St. James and the rest of Scripture. Everything starts with faith, which comes from God and not from us. He expects us not only to receive and unwrap that gift, but to use it in such a way that shows the world that the kingdom of God has come upon us.